It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Rainy weekend, at least a little bit of sunshine for Mother's Day. A couple rainy days, and forecast says it's going to get better as the week goes on. I will believe it when I see it. A lot of stuff going on today. Let's get right to it. We start with big story number one, uh, the United States Supreme Court weighing in on sports betting. Now, let me kind of back up to explain for you exactly what the Supreme Court did today. Back in 1992, Congress passed a law which was designed, It's they called it the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. It did not make it against federal law for states to allow sports betting. It didn't make it against the law then say it's illegal to bet on the Brewers game tonight against Arizona. Um, what the law said was that the state, a state government, could no could not authorize sports betting under state law. And what they then did is they exempted. This was primarily to give like a big sloppy wet kiss to Nevada, where sports betting had been in existence for for like forever. And there were also a couple other states that had variations of sports betting, and they were grandfathered in. But they didn't make it against federal law. They didn't say it's a crime, it violates Title 18, United States Code, whatever, whatever, to to place bets on sporting games. They said that for any of these states other than the four that already had some form of it, primarily Nevada, it is unlawful for the state to authorize sports betting. Well, there's a number of states who have viewed sports betting as being a way to generate, you know, lots of lots of revenue. Um, in addition, just like people who argue that prohibitions against marijuana um, are are outdated, and what we should do is legalize and then tax and regulate marijuana, number of states have been saying, look, people are betting on sports all the time. What they're doing though is they're doing it through this underground economy. You've got Jimbo and Gus, who are, you know, the bookies, who are, you know, taking the money at the local bar or whatever. So sports betting is going on, but, you know, the the government doesn't get a piece of this. New Jersey has been wanting to allow sports betting at its racetracks for a number of years. And New Jersey passed a law allowing sports betting. Now, that law was passed, you know, contrary to this federal act. And New Jersey challenged the federal law. They said this federal law is unconstitutional. And they tried a couple different arguments. But what happened today by a six to three vote, uh, meaning one of the liberal uh, justices sided with the conservatives, is this case was decided on a state's rights issue. The court said, look, we, we don't take a position as to whether legalized gambling on a sports betting would, would be a good thing or not. But the federal government doesn't have the authority to tell the states what it can and cannot do. In other words, the federal government, Congress could pass a law saying it's illegal to bet on sports, but Congress can't pass a law telling the states you can't authorize sports betting if you follow the distinction. It's a state's rights sort of issue. Congress could make it illegal if they wanted to, but that's not what Congress did. What Congress did was they told the state, state of Wisconsin, state of Illinois, state of New Jersey, that it's illegal for you to authorize sports betting. And the Supreme Court today said, no, you, you, you can't tell a state 
what laws it can pass and what laws it can't pass. You can, and uh, the best example would be marijuana. All right. Congress has a law, uh, there's a federal law against, um, use and sale of marijuana. All right. It's a violation of federal law. A number of states have decided to legalize marijuana. So you've got the federal law that's the federal law statute that says it's against the law, but the states have authorized and the states have allowed it. So you can do it without violating state law. If you want to go to Colorado and buy marijuana, you would technically be in violation of a federal law. And then you got to work out how those two work together. But this decision just simply said, Hey, if Congress wants to ban sports betting, they can do it. But, 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 you can't tell the states that they can't authorize something. I actually think it is the right decision. I think to me it's a state's rights sort of issue. But the way this stands now is um, absent a federal law banning sports betting, and I just do not believe that you're going to have a will in Congress. First of all, I don't think President Trump would ever sign something like that. And I just don't see something like that passing through Congress, both houses of Congress. I don't think you're going to have a federal law that prohibits um, sports betting. I just don't see that in the cards. I also wonder if you tried to do that, whether you could do it and exempt Nevada. Um, and, and, of course, nobody wants to say to Las Vegas, you can't have those sports books. But the bottom line is, the way it stands right now, each individual state will be able to decide whether they want to legalize single-game sports betting. Um, New Jersey and 17 or 18 other states, not Wisconsin, have already kind of signed on to this lawsuit. Um, as Eric Bilstadt was saying, either on the air or off the air to me a couple minutes ago, I mean, there are estimates that, you know, in the next five years, 30 to 35 states will allow sports betting. In other words, that you could go to a particular place, you could place a wager um, betting whether or not you think the Packers are going to beat the Bears and all, just like you could when you go to a sports book in Las Vegas. But it's up to the individual states to decide. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Should Wisconsin join with New Jersey and a number of other states in authorizing legal sports betting? We have a lottery that is, of course, run by the state. You have horse racing. Um, you got race betting that is allowed on the Indian casinos. You've got other forms of gambling which are allowed on the Indian casinos. Should we be looking at allowing sports betting as well? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, my guess is within a couple years, you're probably going to have 20 to 25 states which will allow some form of sports betting should Wisconsin join that number. 414-799-1620. And would you like to be able to, if you want to place 10 bucks on the Brewers or the Packers, would you like to be able to do that without having, again, to go to, you know, Jimbo or Gus, you know, the bookies, or having to go to Las Vegas? Would this be good for society? 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1216. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. WTMJ welcomes international soccer to Miller Park. CF Pachuca and Club León 
featuring U.S. men's national team star Landon Donovan will take the pitch on July 11, 2018, and we want you to be there. Keep listening all week during Sports Central for your chance to see international soccer at the home of the Brewers. All right, big Supreme Court case today. I, I kind of went through the legalities of it, but essentially what it says is that states now have the ability to authorize and legalize sports betting in the particular state. So if you wanted to bet 20 bucks to say that the Brewers are going to beat Arizona tonight, you would be able to do it if Wisconsin chose to allow it. Should Wisconsin join what I think will be somewhere between 20 and 25 states in the next year or so that authorize sports betting? Jim in Richfield. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good morning. Good afternoon. I'm sorry. Uh, no problem. Before I get to my point, a quick question, Jeff. Do you think they would run this through the Indian casinos, or would this be something strictly run through the government, like like the lottery is? If well, like in New Jersey, they, in New Jersey, they they want to run it through the racetracks to give you an idea. Um, so they want New Jersey um, allows it there. In, in Wisconsin, I think you would probably well if you did it. If you did it by the state, you'd probably also have to allow the Indian tribes to do it. Um, my guess it would probably be more in a compact agreement through the Indian tribes, but who knows? Okay. And, and my point is, the only thing that kind of makes me uh, wary about this is, you know, if you get 30, 35 states and all these people got their fingers in this, you know, I think it really possibly raises the chance of, of game fixing. I mean, you're going to have so many people and so many uh, involved in this that, you know, Every state's got their own professional football team or baseball mm-hmm. team, and and there's going to be, you know, I think you could get at an umpire or get at a player a lot easier if a lot of people are involved in here. That's that's really well, my only concern. Well, no, thanks, and see, that is that is a concern. I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, there's two things going on, Jim. Um, the the leagues have 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 various approaches to legalized gaming. Um, I think some embrace it more than others. And just like with the, the whole fantasy sports thing that's out there, the fan duel and all that type of stuff, I think what the leagues are trying to do is, on the one hand, they're concerned with integrity of the game. And I get that. They're also trying to figure out how they're going to get their piece of the pie. You know, that's why, um, when, again, when you see a lot of the fantasy stuff, a number of those things are being embraced by the leagues because they're trying to figure out how to monetize it. Okay. Here's a text. Hey, Jeff, I'm not much of a gambler, but I can't help but think that being able, able to wage $20 on a Brewer game might actually make going to the games more fun. Um, am I wrong to think that legal gambling on sports events might translate to better attendance and ticket sales? Just a thought. No, I, I don't think you're, I, I don't think you're wrong at, at all. I mean, I, I think it does I- inspire a degree of interest. Now, here's the flip side. I want to be honest with you because I make the same argument when we talk about legalizing marijuana. There's no question in my mind. That if you were to leak, look, and I understand there's a lot of illicit sports betting that goes on, but there's no question if you were to allow legalized sports betting, um, a lot more people would do it. Just like I think if you'd legalize marijuana, a lot more people would do it. And that would, I think, lead to some of the attendant problems, which do come with compulsive gambling and all. At the same time, though, in many respects, that, that ship has already left the station because you do have... Well, in Wisconsin, for example, you have how many Indian casinos are there around? So, you know, if you want to go and bet on horses, you can do that. If you want to go play blackjack or all the play the slots, you know, you can do that. But I, but I do think more people would definitely do it, and that could lead to some of the problems. Now, that's not necessarily a reason to say you don't do it. It's just the reality. Howard in Sherman Park. Howard, you're on WTMJ. Hello. 
Hi. What well, do you think? I think you're right in that easier access is going to mean that more people will do something, but it levels out over time. Sure. And, I, you know, the people that are going to get in trouble are going to get in trouble now. Um, right, they'll be playing slot machines or something else. Yeah. yeah. But I think we have a pretty good lab in terms of they have gambled on everything in Europe since uh, time immemorial. And all we can do is look at their sports scene and see how it works compared to ours. I mean, they're probably laying bets on the, the <laughs> color of the frock coat, coat of the minister who's going to do the royal wedding. I mean, they bet on everything over there. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, you think take the Euro, right? You've got the you've got the the bookmakers. You know, uh, in, in I, I watch. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I like the English Premier League soccer, and they—that—that's the big thing. Everybody waits to see what the odds are going to be, you know, on the different games and stuff, all the soccer games. And yeah, it hasn't. Uh, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do, and we learn with prohibition. If you make something illegal that too many people choose to do, all you're going to do is fund organized crime. Prohibition gave us the mafia, the war on drugs, and the war on pot has given us the gangs. Mm-hmm. They, they were always gangs, but now they're well-funded gangs. Right, so you, you would be in favor of legalizing it. Uh, you'd be free if the well, state doing this. going to make the money off of it. It might as well be us. I'm not going to do it, but I'll be right. glad to see more <laughs> tax revenue. That doesn't mean I have to gamble. Right, no, no thanks for the call. Well, no, and I'm, I'm getting a couple texts. How would, how would the state make money? Well, you would you would let's say and i mean my guess is it would be state sponsored but but let's say um it would be you follow a nevada model um so my producer grew and i decide we want to open up the grew jeff casino and what we would do is we would take bets and we would be responsible for you have to keep track of the amount of money that came in and you'd have to pay a, a tax on a certain portion of of the handle, the amount of money that was bet, and then, you know, winner, people who won would have to pay taxes as well, just like people who win, you know, when you win in Las Vegas, you're supposed to pay taxes on it. Scott in Wauwatosa. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Good. You know, I think that, you know, the thing is, this has been so underground for so long that um, I think it's it's time to bring it to the forefront and and gain some tax money off this. You know, when I was in college back in the late eighties, early nineties, there was always a bookie on campus. We always bet, yeah. you know, and then there was always somebody there who had an uncle from Cicero or whatever <laughs> that was taking the bets. But you know, right. it's always been underground. And I think that bringing it to the forefront when it's, it's available, there's people that I know that, you know, we go online and bet in Vegas, you know, right. so it's not, it's not like you can't do it already. It's just that, the state doesn't gain a revenue off of it. So if we can gain a revenue off of something that's already being done and bring it to the forefront and make it legal, why not do that? You know, you make a good point. Um, like, for example, m- many of the casinos in Las Vegas have have apps that you can download and you can place wagers through the apps. Now, it, it's it's illegal to do that, you know, but I, it's wink, wink, nod, nod. I don't know how many of the individual bettors, for example, in Wisconsin, that are betting over the Internet in that fashion, how many of them are going to get chased down by the federal government. So, I mean, right, yeah. the sports books are already doing that, even though, again, you're not supposed to do it if you're outside the state. Correct. You're correct. But we know it, it is being done, and... The government hasn't taken a, a stance on it where they're shutting it down because obviously it's still being done. We all get, you know, text messages or emails from bravado.com, <laughs> not to not not to not to pub them or anything, but you know, different things like that. So we know it's going on. So and we might as well take advantage of it in Wisconsin and make it legal and then 
and make it so that you can go down to Potawatomi and do these things or go to different places and, and place these bets and get revenue for Wisconsin because it's going on. Right. And, and, it's, and, and thanks for calling. And, and the reality is, Scott, it, it's going to, with this decision, it, it's going to become a lot more prevalent. Whether Wisconsin jumps on board or not, the reality is lots and lots of states are going to do this. My guess is, I don't know if Illinois was one of the people up front with this, but I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of this. I think Illinois will jump on that as well. So then what happens? You know, Wisconsin, it's sort of like the Oleo runs. Wisconsin residents are going to be running down to Gurney or whatever to, to bet on the Packers games and stuff. Um, I, I think this is the wave of the future. I understand that there's a lot of people that are morally opposed to gambling, and it does bring certain problems. I understand that. But with today's decision, I, I think it sort of just says this is going to happen. And so I think Wisconsin needs to take a look at this to see how much revenue could be generated. It's 1228. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, who's producing the show today and always. Actually, this is one of my favorite evenings of the year. Um, it's an event. I, I, I don't emcee that many events anymore just for a variety of reasons, but um, this is one that as long as they keep inviting me back, I'm, I'm going to go back. Uh, tonight, the Navy League of the United States um, and the Military Armed Forces Services Committee. Um, it is the 39th Annual Armed Forces Dinner. Um, this is uh, again, it's it's Milwaukee Armed Services Week. Um, there's events that are going on all week, and they have a big dinner tonight at the Wisconsin Club, and I'm going to be emceeing it and getting a chance to introduce a number of people, and they got a great keynote speaker, and I'm uh, the place is always packed, and I'm very much looking forward to meeting new friends and seeing some old friends as we do this event uh, tonight. I always appreciate it a great deal. All right, now, I, I have to admit that... Uh, this is this is an idea, and I, I don't want to criticize it because, well, I guess any little thing helps. But to me, this says everything you need to say about Milwaukee County. Here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. Milwaukee County to ask airport passengers for spare change to help the homeless. Okay? Why do I picture, like, Chris Abley standing at the airport with a cup, you know, saying, hey, oh, homeless, give us some money. Milwaukee County, would, this is the way they report it, would ask passengers at Mitchell International Airport for their spare change to help the homeless under a plan to place donation containers at security checkpoints. I guess the idea being you're getting ready to go through the security checkpoint. You know, you've got to take all the objects, you know, out of your pockets. So it would be you've got 75 cents in change. And instead of putting it in the bin with your watch and all the other stuff, you just throw it into the little donation jug. Travelers would have the opportunity to empty their pockets of change onto the containers as they enter the checkpoint at each of the passenger concourses at the airport. The county's housing division would spend the cash on providing rental assistance and employment support for homeless individuals and families. The county board's Economic and Community Development Committee on Monday unanimously recommended board approval of the proposal. Um, now, they base this actually on Denver, which is a much larger airport, but apparently Denver's been doing this for the last three years, and they've generated... Two hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars in change, an average of like ninety-four grand, and then they spend it on programs to aid the homeless. All right, I, I, I guess I, I look at this and I, I say, why not? I mean, if if you're there and you, it, to me, it's it's completely optional. You want to get rid of your change, you can kind of throw that in. But I mean, I, I'm thinking ways that we could really jazz this up. Like I say, maybe get some members of the county board 
and, and Chris Abley, instead of just having containers, maybe they could go down there and actually, you know, hold those containers and, and shake them and kind of, you know, here, we're, we're trying to raise money for the homeless. I think, I think that would be a great public service thing. Get the members of the county board to, I don't know, volunteer three, four, five hours a day down at the airport trying to raise money in that fashion. Might work. I don't care one way or the other. I mean, I guess it sounds like they are providing an opportunity and an option for people, and that is fine. All right. Uh, this happened Friday afternoon. It has generated an enormous amount of controversy, and it, it shows, I, I think, partly what happens when you only get a small portion of a story. Maybe you have seen the, the video that's out there. Um, all the TV stations aired it. What happened is on at, on Friday afternoon out at Mayfair, there were apparently a group of young people who were creating a disturbance um, at at the mall. Um, security calls and says, hey, we, we need help. So the Wauwatosa police respond and find several of the people who were creating the disturbance at the mall out in the parking lot. All right, so the security's there. They've gotten them out of the mall. What happens is a, a Wauwatosa police officer then approaches the group to try to talk with the people, finding out what happened, um, and tries to speak with them. Um, one of the kids refuses to speak with the police and then gets into a fight, a struggle with the officer. All right, at that point in time, you know, it, it just it's on. The, the 17-year-old gets into a fight with the officer, and you perhaps have seen the video, a security guard, they're trying to subdue the, the kid, and, and I say kid, he's 17 years old. A security guard you know, grabs him and is holding him by the arms, and the police officer kind of throws a forearm, throws a punch um, at the 17-year-old. He goes down, he's continuing to struggle, he's screaming, and there's somebody that's, that's videotaping this entire thing. So, again, this video goes viral. Um, A small group of people calling themselves the original Black Panthers of Milwaukee. Um, Then what they do is they go out and they're now staging a protest. They are calling for a boycott of Mayfair Mall and a firing of the police officer as a result of, you know, what happened here. The group is demanding the officer resign or be filed fired they're calling on prosecutors to charge them they also want shoppers to boycott the mall um, one of the spokespeople for this group says far too often we are subjected to racial profiling in this mall far too often those dynamics have to change and we're here to demand that they do change the Wauwatosa police say all right we're, we're aware of this this video um, but at the same time this video only shows a small small segment of of the interaction between the suspect and the officer. So, I mean, what they're essentially saying is this, you know, this just captures the end of this. You know, you don't see what went on before that, but we're conducting an investigation. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The group wants Mayfair Mall to be boycotted because of the conduct of this Wauwatosa police officer. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it time to boycott Mayfair Mall because of the way particularly persons of color are treated? 
Or alternatively, is that the wrong question? Let me be real clear here. I, I don't, having not seen what led up to this punch or forearm that is thrown by the police officer, it's tough for me to judge without having that overall context. But, and, and, and here's an important but, if the officer used excessive force, I think it's fine to discipline him. All right? I think that's, that is completely and totally appropriate. I don't know enough about this, having seen only this 15-second clip, to make a determination one way or the other. But at the same time, isn't there another issue that's out there? What was it that was going on? Why isn't this group outraged about the underlying conduct that these this group of, of teenagers or whatever were engaging in creating the disturbance that caused security and the police to have to get involved in the first place. Because, again, if the police officer is wrong, the police officer is wrong, do the investigation. All right, maybe that's where it's going to lead. But none of this happens unless there is the problem with the kids, the teenagers, in the first place. And maybe we should be start to look a little bit at that as well. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in just a minute. Is it time to boycott Mayfair Mall, or maybe do we just need to be asking questions about everybody's behavior in connection with this matter? 1243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's a Friday afternoon around 430. You've got a group of teenagers creating a disturbance in Mayfair Mall. They refuse to leave. It is so bad that security has to call the Wauwatosa police. The Wauwatosa police show up, and there is a confrontation with the group. The way the police statement says is, you know, at least one or more members of the group start fighting with the cops. Um, at one point in time, and maybe you've seen this video one of the kids is grabbed by a security guy, and the police officer throws a forearm at him. He continues to struggle. The original Black Panthers of Milwaukee are calling for a boycott of the mall. One of their spokespeople say it doesn't matter if that individual was causing a disturbance at the mall. He did not deserve to be assaulted and punched in his face. Well, I, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I don't know. It kind of depends on what happened before that. But do we really need to boycott Mayfair Mall, or, or should we be concerned whether or not police overreacted, but also with the underlying behavior that caused the security to have to call the cops in the first place. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Mike in Wauwatosa. Hi, Mike. Hey, Jeff. Th- thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, just a couple observations. Number one, I, I think it's a way overreaction to, to do a boycott of the ball. I think totally unnecessary. It, it's not unusual for, for kids to have all with, with the security over in that ball. That's a concern. I'm also concerned with the video clip I saw. Mm-hmm. It certainly does raise yep. some red flags in terms of whether excessive force was used or not. I did not see what led up to it, but you got two grown adult men with the kid on the ground. I, it doesn't look good. It's not a pretty scene. Nope. Uh, but to, to react without having all the facts and without the investigation and to go into a boycott mode is to me, rather silly and a little unfortunate. There are there are bigger issues out there. Well, exactly, and I guess I, I sort of look right. I mean, I, I sort of look at this and say, all right, I, it looks like there's a lot of blame to go around. And I guess the, the, if the idea is, well, we shouldn't examine the underlying conduct that caused security to have to call the police. I I, re, I reject that, and and I'm with you. If the officer's use of force was excessive. Well, then, I mean, he needs to be disciplined. I, I don't know enough about that. I don't think anybody but, does to take that position. Yeah, and I'm not jumping to yeah. that conclusion either. 
I'm yeah. just saying that looking at the video, it does raise an issue. Yeah. Oh no, exactly. No, thanks for calling. I mean, I, I understand. That's why. That's why I didn't come out and say, "Oh, I'm automatically convinced that the police officer did nothing wrong." I mean, but, but this idea that okay, it doesn't matter what what the the groups of kids do. They can be disruptive. They can start fights. They can do whatever, and we don't have to hold them accountable. And we're going to go after the mall people. Well, what's the mall supposed to do? I mean, seriously, if you've got groups of teenagers—white, black, green, blue—I don't care—that are causing disturbances and refuse to leave when the security tells them to. Well, at, at some point in time, and then when the police show up, and again, the Wauwatosa police story is: officer tried to talk to somebody, the kid became belligerent and started fighting. Oh. oh Okay, what what are the cops supposed to do, and can't we at least examine everybody's behavior here? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Jeff in Fox Point. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. In my opinion, this so-called Black Panther group is completely off base. I have seen how disrespectful, disruptive, and even belligerent kids of various races and cultures can get in, in the Mayfair Mall and how big of a problem it is. It does need to be policed. And I think that instead of making inappropriate demands and, and calling for boycotts, this group needs to reach out to these kids and figure out why they are causing trouble and possibly, you know, guide them to not do so. Right. Or um, I'm getting a number of texts who are saying, oh, boy, boy, boycott them all for, for all all these kids who are out there making trouble. Stay away from them all. And, and maybe what you'll see is more people who are there to shop who will go to Mayfair Mall, perhaps. I think that's incredibly misguided, and if, if that keeps up, then there's not going to be a mall for people to shop at. I've seen other other malls go down. Northridge? We don't want that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we, don't, no, no. we don't want other ones. Right. No, no thanks for calling. I mean, again, that that's – I mean, I, I don't know that this idea that there's this institutional problem. Look, the truth is they have had problems at Mayfair. It is an ongoing problem at Mayfair. You have, you have these stories of these fights breaking out. You know, they're trying their best to, uh, again, control these groups of kids – many of whom come out there for the sole purpose of trying to cause trouble for whatever reason. And again, white, black, brown, green doesn't make any difference. You know, you've got the security guards that have their their hands full. And if this police officer exceeded his authority, again, I keep saying this, fine, go after him. But boycott the mall? I mean, give me a break. And why don't we also focus on the underlying conduct? But again, some of these groups that are trying to get the headlines, they don't they want to care about that. They don't want to point the finger and saying, okay, well, maybe... Maybe in addition to trying to seek justice for, all right, uh, with regard to the police officer, maybe we should start looking in what was it that the teenager did or the teenagers did that generated this response in the first place. Let's talk to Lori on the south side. Hi, Lori, you're on WTMJ. Hi. What do you think? Oh, my God. My whole, like, high school career was in the late 80s going to the mall. That's where Mm -hmm. you hung out. Um, we went and we looked at clothes and tried on makeup at Boston store, mm-hmm. the late Boston store. Which, which mall and did you, were you, were you a Southridge girl? Um, no, usually Brookfield Square. Okay, got it. Okay, got it. Okay. You know, and, but there was nothing like this. It was just, you know, you hung out there and I think some of the shopkeepers did not like the high school kids hanging out just because we didn't buy much. Right. But we didn't start fighting. <laughs> Well, well, right. No, that's, I mean, look, I mean, I remember when I was, I'm, I'm probably a little bit older than you are, but I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, back then Northridge was a place, you know, on, on a Saturday afternoon, you, you'd go to Northridge and you'd kind of hang out. And yeah, you'd you, hang you, out in the food court. Right, yeah, right and, and do all the various things that you did, but but you weren't, 
you know, there weren't situations where you were being disruptive and you were causing problems. And no, it, there was no confrontations with 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 anyone with you know security. Like you know, right. you, you, it was just a place to hang out with your friends. Right, and if if anybody ever got tossed out, okay, the security has thrown you out. Boom, that's the end of it. It doesn't escalate to the stage that they need to call the cops, and then you know somebody right. gets in a fight with the cops. That that's what's mind blowing right. about yeah, the whole you, thing. You, you did wrong, and you gotta go. Um, no, right. Th- no, thanks for calling. See, that's, I mean, that is the, that's the challenge that ends up being here. And I guess I just, I, I think in covering and watching this story, I, I want, I want more details about what it was that led up to this. Cause I don't hear anybody saying that the behavior of the kids was not worthy of, of having the cops called. You know, that, that's, we're not focusing on that. Matter of fact, the attitude of some of these groups is it doesn't matter what the kids did. Let's. It doesn't matter, you know, how aggressive they were. It doesn't matter how disorderly they were. It doesn't matter if they refused to, you know, follow the instructions. You know, the, the police officers are the bad guys. Well, I'm not quite willing to go that far. And, and I think sometimes we're way too quick to point the finger when it comes to issues like that. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Aaron in Milwaukee. Aaron, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Yes. Hi, Aaron. Yes, how you doing? Good. No, I'm calling about, they're saying they got to change all these rules and regulations. Us as people, we don't have nothing. They shut down. These kids need to be disciplined and, re- and learn how to have respect. When the law tells you to do something, you got to respect the law. If you don't respect the law, you have nothing to look forward to. Police ain't doing nothing wrong. They got a job. They, you don't know what a whole lot of stuff they go through on a daily basis. They mm-hmm. go through a whole lot of weird, strange people. Right. And they well, have to deal with this. On a day. You don't know what these people do. Well, well, right. Well, I mean, if you've got a group of kids that are behaving disorderly in the mall. They need to be they need to be taught by adults. They've got too many kids trying to take over they don't know what's happening. Well that's Everybody it. Thinks, kids are not the brain they're not brainstorm. Um well, no, thanks no I, I appreciate it. No Aaron, th- I mean thanks for calling. I don't mean to cut you short. But yeah, I mean it's I, again I this doesn't happen. This incident doesn't happen if number one, the group of teenagers behaves. There's all sorts of teenagers out at Mayfair Mall. Okay, they're, they're not all getting thrown out. And by the way, if I can, you know, you know, play the race card, there's all sorts of African American teenagers that are out at Mayfair Mall that aren't getting thrown out. This group did something that attracted security. They then refused to leave to the point that security had to call the cops. This is not something that you do that, that you love doing. All right, then instead of simply leaving. All right, then you had this stuff, the problem that had then moved into the parking lot. So the cops arrived. They're trying to conduct their investigation into what happened. And you have at least one of the kids that instead of just simply, I don't know, cooperating and doing what the law enforcement officer told him, he gets aggressive with the cops. And again, I, I'm not justifying. I don't know whether it was appropriate to throw a forearm or not. Don't, don't know. I'd like to see more. Hopefully there's body cameras or there's something like that so we can see what led up to this. But I do know that simply putting all the blame on the police is fundamentally wrong. And I think this is one where it's really good to withhold judgment on it. And as far as boycotting Mayfair, give me a break. It's 1257. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 110. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, did you listen to or watch that ball game yesterday, the Brewers game? Uh, just a little piece of it, but I did oh, listen to it. A what bit. a great yep, yep. story. I, I mean, it's one of the things that is just so cool about sports. The um, the scheduled pitcher, Chase Anderson, comes down with the flu. 
So he, he's not able to go. So the Brewers have to call up somebody from the minor leagues. They call up this Freddie Peralta guy who's pitching. He was scheduled to. He's from the Dominican Republic. He was scheduled to pitch Saturday night in Colorado Springs. Yeah. So it's right down the road from where they're playing in Denver. The the guy's parents had come in from the Dominican Republic. They'd never seen him pitch in the major in the in the professional leagues before. Mm-hmm. Um, so they come in thinking they're going to watch him pitch Saturday night in Colorado Springs. And he's called up, and so he's pitching in Coors Field instead for the Brewers. And he has this amazing game, takes a no-hitter into, what, the fifth inning or something, um, strikes out 13 of the 17 men he faces. It's just, and the Brewers win on top of it, which is great. But it's just a great feel-good story. And pictures of his dad with tears in his eyes on the phone from all the relatives calling him. Oh, yeah, and and the the young man, I mean, he's just excited and ecstatic. It was just, it's, it's why... Every once in a while, I mean, I, I go to a lot of ball games and stuff, and it doesn't matter if it's football or basketball or baseball or, or whatever. You just you just never know what's going to happen on a given day. So and, do you keep him up? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. How can you not? Well, we'll see. Oh, how, oh, one hit, no runs. Um, okay, so my producer, Gru, is saying one more start. Why are you saying one more start? You think he's going to stink after that? No room for him? Oh, okay, have you seen the way some of the Brewers starting pitcher? He says no room for him. Okay. Well, which ones do you sit down then? Well, uh, well, um, Suter, I, I, who I like. See, I, I interview these guys on opening day. So I mean, but but I mean, here's the bottom line: he's unscored upon. I, yes, I keep I keep rolling him out there till he gets lit okay, up. Okay. Absolutely, no. I I I'm this guy that says you ride the hot hand. Doesn't matter what you know. And, and again, maybe the next time out. You know, he gets lit up like a Christmas tree and stuff like that. Maybe this was just a fluke. I don't know. But, you know, and, until until they start sc- until at least they score a run off him, yeah, I'd keep trotting <laughs> him out there. Yes, that's uh, me. All right. All right. See. Just saying. But regardless, regardless, it was just a great story and um, just a fun sort of thing. All right. This is not a great story. This is my seg- segue. Uh, the Republic- state Republican convention was in Milwaukee on uh, over the weekend. Um, matter of fact, maybe a little bit later on, we'll have a chance to talk about the what it means that the delegates endorsed uh, Leah Vukmir over Kevin Nicholson and, and where that race goes from here. But um, on Friday evening, uh, the governor and Mrs. Walker had a, a reception at the Milwaukee Public Museum and, and delegates and attendees were invited. If, if you've ever been to one of these political conventions, you know, a lot of there's a lot of hospitality rooms that get set up, and this was an invitation event at, at the Milwaukee Public Museum. Okay, so you've got guests that are arriving, people that are coming to the public museum. The um, there were a, a handful of ragtag protesters, and I do want to say handful, uh, about thirty. So I mean, it, it's not like this was Act Ten. You've got all sorts of you know people, but but there were about thirty. And the behavior of these protesters was, in a word, appalling. Um, They show up, and it's not just like standing there with signs, but they start screaming at all the people who are showing up at this event. You know, they're on the sidewalk, and they're screaming. It's a very, very in-your-face mob that is yelling at the people who are attending this event. Um, They're screaming, Shame, 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 you know, that, that kind of old tired mantra. Like it's like, okay, 2011 is calling it once its slogan back. Um, they're screaming things like get a job. If you look at some of the footage that's out there, you've got 
senior citizens, people on walkers, I mean, walkers that are going into this event, and you've got this crazy, again, it's a ragtag group of protesters that are in their face and are screaming, shame, 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 get a job at these like senior citizens who are showing up on walkers going into the event. So you kind of roll your eyes. But here's the dazzling detail. Gru, who is producing the show today and always, do you know who was behind this particular protest event? You are shaking your head no. It was the teachers' union, the Milwaukee Teachers' Union. Um, at least that's what TV is reporting. Many of the protesters are part of or are supporting the Milwaukee Teachers' Union. The Milwaukee Teachers' Union were the group that decided that they were going to not just picket, but start screaming at young people and older people as they're getting out of cars and trying to enter. This is the teachers' union, which at least members of the teachers' union are doing this. Now, this is not about the right to have lawful protests. Nobody's arguing that, and I'm not suggesting that people should be arrested for things like that. But at the same time, Just like I think there was a backlash that came from the -the over-the-top protests about Act 10 that led to, um, you know, walkers, you know, winning the recall, you know, pretty comfortably. I think no matter how legitimate the arguments are, and by the way, schools are getting more funding in this year's budget, but that's another point, showing up and, and being confrontational and screaming in the face of people who are, again, attending this event. I think the effect of this is incredibly counterproductive, and I think it has the effect of turning off a lot more people than it would potentially turn on. And if this is the way certain elements of the left are going to behave over the course of the next few months, I, I think some of this talk about the blue wave and all, I think that goes out the window because I think anybody looking at what happened on Friday evening downtown Milwaukee and looking at the reaction of these protesters and the way they were behaving, I think the general response is, this is just not a group that I want to be part of. And to the extent it was the teachers union or members of the teachers union that were doing this, my response to them would be, Shame, shame, shame on you. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you happen to be you know, one of the people that had to walk this particular gauntlet on Friday, um, or I, I'd be particularly interested in talking to you, but it is are protests like this the way that you win hearts and minds? And my idea would be absolutely not. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 120, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. That's Leonard Skinner's Give Me Three Steps. I have been humming slash singing that for the last four days. That is my earworm lately. Give me three steps for the door. I, it's, you know, it's just, it, it's stuck there. For the life of me. I, I See, I understand, you know, the, the idea behind protest and you want to send a message and you want to get people's attention. I get all that. I, I understand it. For the life of me, I do not understand why people, particularly, I don't know, people who have positions of responsibility, would think that it is a good idea to engage in protest 
that crosses any sort of line, and, I, I'm, and I'm not talking about legal things, but you know, you saw this play out on Friday evening. If you're just tuning in, what happens is Republic, state Republican convention is in Milwaukee over the weekend. Um, there was an event for the delegates at the Milwaukee Public Museum. Right, so you had a ragtag group of protesters, about 30 people who were either members of or supporters of the Milwaukee Teachers Union. This is the same teachers union who apparently was exploring the idea of a sick out today, but it didn't work because not enough teachers signed up. Credit, credit to them. I mean, seriously, credit to them for saying we're not going to go along with this. This is the same teachers union where you have um, a substitute teacher who's on a hunger strike because he's even though he's uh, you know a part-time employee he um, he wants he wants full benefits so he's going to go on a hunger strike and benefits would cost millions of dollars that the school board doesn't have so I mean that that that's this group so anyhow you have a handful of these protesters who who show up they're on the sidewalk outside the museum so you have the the guests that are coming and this group decides they are going to be confrontational I mean screaming at Senior citizens who show up on walkers, screaming at, at, at young people who are showing up, you know, shame, 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 get a job. That, that same sort of stuff, this really direct, in-your-face type of confrontational thing that you, you start looking at and you say, okay, is this really how you think that you're going to be able to win hearts and minds, essentially be- behaving in a thuggish fashion because what, you know, you, you feel that you're somehow – put upon or aggrieved or whatever. And again, I understand the whole idea of legitimate protest and stuff like that. But what you saw yesterday was you saw a temper tantrum, or what you saw on Friday was a temper tantrum by you know a, a bunch of people who should know how to conduct themselves in public, but apparently don't. And they think that's how they're going to win hearts and minds. Well, okay, that, that's fine. Carry those sort of tactics over... Um, into the electoral process and watch how the talk of a blue wave completely and totally disappears. Because I will tell you, there's a lot of people of goodwill who don't want to be a member of a club that would engage in that sort of behavior. My message to the folks who decided to protest and be confrontational, shame, shame, shame on you. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. Can you go home again? And should you stick around? It's 123. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 125. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Should Wisconsin allow gambling on the outcome of sporting events? Jane Matinair takes a look at the economic side of sports betting. That's at 721 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. As we talked about at the start of the show, as a result of a Supreme Court decision today, states are, are now free to decide whether or not they want to authorize sports betting uh, I, will Wisconsin do it? I, I doubt that there's much in the current environment. I guess that I doubt that there's much support for it. But my guess is lots of other states started New Jersey. I think you'll be able to bet on sporting events. Um, I think probably within the next month or so, I would not be surprised by that. But anyhow, tune in hear Jane's story. Seven twenty one tomorrow on Wisconsin's morning news. All right. I, I want to completely switch gears because I, I, I said something as an aside on Friday and it was interesting because over the weekend, I was at several different events, and of the three hours of Friday show, I, I had at least a half dozen different people coming up and who'd heard the one little aside that I said, and they wanted to talk about it. All right, now, this is 
for the first time, essentially in my in my adult life, since I was like 10 years old, this is the first time that I have not been a resident of Milwaukee County. My, my parents lived in Glendale, aside from going away to college, but I was still a resident here. When I came back, I, I've always, I've rented apartments. I've always lived in Milwaukee County, bought a house in Milwaukee County, owned it for 30 years. I, I sold the house, closed on the house on, on Friday. So for the first time in, in my life, essentially, since I was 10 years old, I have I've, I now do not live in, in Milwaukee County. So the closing on my house was was Friday, and this is a house that um, I had lived in for almost 30 years, almost 30 years, and I was at the closing, and, it, and I, I was talking to uh, the the buyer's agent, and she came up, and we were just kind of having a, a discussion. We were talking about the house, and she said, well, the, the people that are buying it, they, they've got – They've got these exciting plans for what they want to do with the house. They want to add on a bedroom back here. They want to do this or that or the other thing. I said, oh, that, that's cool. And uh, then she said, well, what you should really do is you should come back, like like in six months. You know, you should stop by and, and see what the house looks like. And I said this Friday, and I, I, I immediately, without, without, I guess, thinking of it, I said, no. I said, you know, I just, I really, I, I, I don't want to, I, I love the house. I, I love the house. I was there for 30 years. It's got a ton of, it's got a ton of memories, ton of life that's there, but I, I don't, it's theirs. I don't want to see it. I mean, I, the day before closing, I, I walked through the house on, on Thursday and just by myself and I kind of like walked up and looked at different rooms and I, you know, I kind of flashed back all these different memories and stuff. And then I, I kind of walked out, closed the garage door and, and went on. I don't need to see it. And it's interesting, the house I grew up in, my, my parents' house in Glendale, and they lived there for probably close to 40 years until we sold it. And every once in a while, somebody will want to see where you grew up, and I'll take them through the neighborhood. But it, it's never, I guess I don't have a desire to pull into the driveway, bang on the door and say, hey, this is the house that I grew up in. Can I see what you've done with it? I just, I, I don't need to see it. And so anyways, I say that to the, the lady who's the real estate agent for the buyers. And my initial reaction was, no, I, I, it's theirs. I, I don't need to go back. I don't, I've got my memories. And I don't need to see what they do with it. And yet, candidly, I don't think I want to. And, and that was just my initial reaction. And she kind of looked at me and said, huh, that, that's, that's sort of interesting. A lot of people, you know, want to, want to go back. So anyhow, I, I just, I mentioned that on the radio on Friday. And over the weekend, I, I literally had half a dozen people coming up and reacting to that that statement. Um, and some people were saying, oh, you know, when, when we moved out of the house that we grew up in or, or whatever, you know, we first thing we wanted to do every time we'd come back from school, we'd go bang on the door and we'd want to see what it looked like. And I had other people saying, I know exactly what you're talking about, Jeff. It's like you, you don't you don't want to go back. All right, so let's 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, can you go home uh, again? The house that you grew up in, the house that you spent a good portion of your life in, um, you know, once you're gone from that, do you have do you have a desire to go back and see what's happened to it, or or you know, I'm not talking about going back and visiting old neighbors, but I mean, I'm talking about you know, going in and and seeing you know what the new people have done with the house and how they've changed things. Do you have a desire to do that, or in, in my case, it was just my memories are my memories, and I I don't I don't need to go back. I have no desire to do that. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's my that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Can you go home again? Should you go home again? 
134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, I'm, I'm really curious at your reaction. If you're just tuning in, here's the deal. Um, the house I this house I lived in for 30 years, I sold it, um, closed on it on, on Friday. And the real estate agent for the buyer said, oh, they've got all these plans. They're going to do this or that or the other thing. And you should really go back in six months and see what they've done. And my immediate reaction was, no, I it's I. I, it, it's their house. I mean, I've got my memories. I don't. I don't need to see the changes and all any of that stuff. I want to. I want to remember the house as it was. You know when. You know when when I was living there, and now you know I've, I've got. I'm making new memories and that type of stuff. And actually, kind of took her back. This is the buyer's agent. She said, "Well, you know that I, that's interesting, and you know I, that I I think you know you feel that that's just that that's kind of interesting." And I've been getting all this feedback from just that comment over the weekend. So, can you go back again? I mean, do you have House, whether it's the house you grew up in, or maybe it's like you, like me, the house that you know you lived in for thirty years, and then for whatever reason you moved on. Do you have a desire to go back? And again, I'm not talking about going back to visit you know neighbors in the neighborhood, but whether it was the house I grew up in that my parents owned in Glendale for a better part of forty years, I've never had a desire to go knock on the door and see what the people that bought it have, have done with it. And I don't think I'm going to have a desire to go and bang on the door of the house that I just sold and see what the Folks who are making their own memories have done with it. 414-799-1620. Let's start with um, Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? I, I, well, I had no desire to go. The house that I grew up in, it was in Brookfield or whatever. I uh, moved in there when I was in like in third grade or second grade, up until I graduated high school and then moved out. And um, oddly enough, this is kind of a weird switch of faith. I've never had any desire to go back and look at the house. Right. As it turns out, um, a friend of mine, who I was, I was his best man. And he was my best man. Uh, wound up buying the house. <laughs> wow, yeah. the house you yeah. grew up in. Okay, wow. Yeah, okay. So that's like really weird. And then that was like in the two thousands. I don't know, two thousand eleven, something like that. Anyway, so going back through there, it was kind of like I was really apprehensive. To be perfectly honest, I was uh-huh. kind of like. I can show you all the good hiding spots are. Right, right. So it was kind. Of, it was a little bit weird, huh? Going through the house. Yeah, I mean, but but aside from that, I don't. I don't think I'd ever really want to go back. I mean, I had no desire prior. Right. right. Yeah. It was. It was just. Yeah. I mean, you, you didn't want to see. Gee, what have yeah, they done with my bedroom or or whatever? Yeah. It's. Yeah, I, I had my memories, and that was good enough. And then you know, you go in there, and, and even the house that I'm into right now, it's just we've been here just about thirty years, and the people that were only second owners, and the people that we bought it from. Or the the the, uh, the wife, the husband passed away, but um, she stopped by and she was like pretty elderly. She just wanted to show her friends, you know, where she. Oh. Whenever it was, it was kind of cool. She didn't want to come in. She goes, I don't want to come in. Just wanted to show, you know, show, right. show one of her friends and and. Uh, well, I know. guess I mean, thanks. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I can see that. Like I say, I I have driven past my parents house with with people who you know one this is you know this is where i grew up this is the neighborhood i grew up in that's it and so i mean i, I kind of get that but again I, it's never occurred to me i never thought about gee let me pull into the driveway and bang on the door and say hi you don't know me folks but you know i this is this is where i grew up uh let's see hi jeff after both my parents were gone and we had to make a very hard decision to sell their house i thought i'd never see it again luckily for me my ex-brother-in-law bought it my ex-brother-in-law we are still very close to him, so when I go home, instead of staying with my actual family, my husband and I stay with my ex-brother-in-law. Laugh out loud. I told him I come with the house. It's kind of hard to see some of the changes, but um, it's still I still feel right at home. 414-799-1620. John in West Bend. John, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, uh, Jeff. Thanks for taking sure. my call. 
Yeah, I, I uh, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and, and um, my uh, father passed away a couple years ago, and we sold the house. And my all of the siblings are away from uh, Ohio, and um, I'm going back for a wedding this um, June um, in about a month. So uh, my wife asked me, "Do you want to stop by the house and see it?" And I don't even want to see the outside, um, mm-hmm. but I, I do know that they changed the inside a lot um, and blew out walls and, and right. things based on what my brother had said when he, he my brother did visit. But um, I just have too many memories there. Um, I lived yeah. there since I was six until I graduated from college and went back uh, over the next 30 years. And I just have too many memories that are good to see it change. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and right. And it's, it's not like, I mean, the, the owners, they bought it. They get to do whatever they want and they get to make it, you know, conducive to their lives. But you, you know, you, you remember how these different things were. If you go back and see what they've done, it kind of changes your memories a little bit, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it, I do agree with it. It's their house. They can do whatever they want with it. Um, but I just don't want to see it. Um, yeah. I've got my memories, and, and that's all I need. Yeah, no, thank, that's, that's kind of how I feel. Todd says, Jeff, I'm not sure if it's a question of can you go back. It's more of should you go back. I guess to me this is someone else's house now. May have been something that people don't think twice about 50 years ago, but we live in a different world nowadays. Uh, let's see another text. Big mistake going back to my childhood home. New elderly owner complained about everything. <laughs> well, that's, um, you know, that's, uh, that's it. Teresa says, there was an apartment I lived in that was a duplex and they made it into one family. I would like to see, you know, what it looks like now. Here's another one. Alan P. Walkie says, we moved out of our forever home in Delafield. And that's what this was. This was my forever home. Um, last month. It's not ours anymore. I have no desire to even drive by it. Huh. Mike in Oconomowoc. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, I like you. I'm, I'm originally from Maryland. Okay. And several years back, uh, we were burying my mother in Arlington, and I have a brother in the State Department, and me and my wife and son went out to uh, to visit, and we borrowed one of my brother's cars. We drove to Hagerstown to see the house that I was raised in as a young man, as a, in my first grade school years. Right. Um, I wanted them to see it just because they'd heard all about it. And I actually didn't walk to the door and knock, but nobody answered. But I was raised after that in Wauwatosa, and my mother died six years ago, seven years ago, and I had to sell her house. And I don't want to see the house anymore. It's like an old girlfriend. I don't want to see it again. <laughs> um, I, I loved growing up there, but it's not mine. And driving past it is it's what used to be, not what is. So Yeah, um, I, I, th- I think that's a good way to look. That That's certainly how... I feel about the house I grew up in. You know, my, my parents owned it for about 40 years and then, you know, they both be, you know, had some health issues and they had to leave it. And we had to, we we're, were tasked with, my brother and I were tasked with cleaning it out and, and selling it and things like that. And I, I'm glad, I, I hope the new owners love it, but yeah, I know, I don't, I don't need to see it. I, I remember, you know, it is interesting too, Mike. I don't, I don't know how you would have felt if you were able to get into the house. Every time I, I went back into the house I was raised in, I, the, the rooms that seemed so big to me, like my bedroom and stuff, it, it's just like, God, this is really small. I was nervous about that in Maryland. I walked up to the door. I didn't know if I really wanted to see it or not. My, father, my natural father had died there, but it, it didn't turn out that way. But ironically, my house here in New Berlin, the first house I owned, my first uh, personal property, um, it was bulldozed, so I don't have that problem. Right, yeah, it, it is. Uh, th- thanks, Nicole. I have a, I have a text from somebody who says the same thing. I I would really like to see my my first house, but the people who the, the people who bought it they tore the whole thing down, and now they're rebuilding. And I can't believe that they're doing that. Okay, um, here's the text. We live in an old farmhouse we bought from the man that grew up on the farm. Um, 
let's see. Um, he lived there for 70 years. Um, in the past 20 years, we have had several of his nieces and nephews stop by and ask to come in and see the house. Yeah, I, I remember at one point in time, God, we had probably owned the house that, that I, I just sold. We'd owned it for maybe five or 10 years and, there were a couple of the the girls. Um, I think there were. I mean, it was a relatively large family. It was a big house. A couple of the girls banged on the door and sort of wanted to to see come in and just like look at the house. And I I, I understand people. I guess I, I understand that. It just it wasn't for me. So I I was able to kind of close the book on that. And um, I, I wish the folks best. But I guess that's the question: is is you know can you go back and and should you go back? All right, it's 144, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Somebody text me, Jeff, I'd love to go back to my grandparents' house just to see if it's really like I remember it. I was young last time I was there. I, you know, that, that I got me think. My, 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 my mom's parents both passed away before I was born, so I never knew them. But my um, paternal grandmother and grandfather, they um, they lived in a row house in Baltimore, Maryland. It was with about five or six blocks from the the old Memorial Stadium where the Orioles and the Baltimore Colts used to play. I mean, I used to my my grandfather used to take me down to Baltimore Oriole games, you know, on, on a regular basis when I was a kid. Um, part of me, and so I remember these these, these row houses that you kind of see on the wire and things like that. If you watch the HBO show there, um, part of me, I am intrigued. Part of me would, would kind of like to see that, but um, the neighborhood, it's interesting. The neighborhood was kind of changing, and not for the better, in 1968. I can only imagine what it's like now. I, I think I want to stay very far away from that, because I think it would probably break my heart to see you know, what's happened to those neighborhoods over the years. But got to decide that for yourself. All right, let us completely and totally switch gears. They estimate that there are about 5,000 gun clubs at high schools and universities across the country. Um, that's according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Okay, high school gun clubs? What are you talking about, Jeff? Well, I mean, it's where they, they teach shooting and sometimes engage in competitive shooting. Um, these clubs use a variety of firearms. A lot use air rifles that shoot pellets. Some use 9 millimeter pistols that fire bullets. Um, some of the people... Who some of the kids who participate in these these clubs um, they, they hope to qualify for Olympic competition. Um, the NRA gives about two point two million dollars in cash or equipment to schools across thirty states to help fund some of these programs. Now let's talk about New York State for just a minute. Um, air riflery is currently the smallest varsity sport in New York State. 28 teams statewide, 266 participants last year. It's also a very female-dominated sport. Um, girls won 19 of the last 31 state individual air rifle championships. Okay, so it's 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 a small kind of niche sport, but together with archery, you know, these shooting sports are in fact you know, something that appeal to a, a number of kids. Right. So why are we talking about this? There is a state representative out of New York who has introduced a law which would outlaw all high school shooting sports programs in the state, including all air rifle teams and all archery clubs. The state representative, her her name is uh, Linda Rosenthal. She's from New York City. 
Her argument is that these clubs, you know, especially at the high school level, that, that ha- involve shooting sports, and we're including both archery and we're including like air rifle teams and things like that. Um, the premise is they feed into a gun and shooting culture that could lead to violence. And part of her argument is the Nicholas Cruz, who was the the guy involved in the, the shooting at Parkland, he apparently uh, participated in um, some riflery, some shooting competition at his high school. So the argument is this kid did it. That means that oh, presumably any kid that does this is going to turn into be a, a, a mass murderer. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We have all sorts of different sports and activities at, at different schools, and um, one of the things that's great is that kids can kind of find you know, their own niche. Maybe you're not going to be able to play on the basketball team, but you still like competition. Maybe you're not big enough or fast enough to play on the football team or the volleyball team or, or whatever. So you find other stuff that you like, and, and maybe that's shooting air rifles, or maybe that's participating in the shooting club or the skeet shooting club, or maybe you, you like archery, you do the bow and arrow thing. right? This state representative says this is where our school shooters are coming from, it should not be something that is sponsored by the school. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me see. How can I put this? I think this lady is nuts, but let's talk about it. 414-799-1620. Gru is lining up the calls we discuss in just a minute. I think for a lot of reasons. This is just absolutely crazy, and it shows the hysteria that is out there when it comes to firearms, and in this case, archery as well stick around we're back with your calls in just a minute it's 152 jeff wagner wtmj it's 155 this is jeff wagner if you're just tuning in there's a state representative in new york who's introduced legislation which would ban all high school shooting clubs including air rifles and archery because she thinks it contributes to the gun culture and she points to the fact that the guy who was engaged in the shooting in parkland florida well you know he was on one of the shooting teams or one of the shooting clubs so therefore if you participate, you must be, I don't know, we're creating a generation of mass murderers. Glenn in Burlington writes, Burlington has a shotgun and pistol team. I know of male and females who received college scholarships and one who may be a next Olympic champion. Let's talk to Joe in Elm Grove. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Joe. I enjoy the show. Thanks. I just wanted to uh, throw in there that my nephew's on a team up in Germantown. And one of the things that these clubs or varsity sports do you know, is, is really teach the kids such um, a high level of responsibility in mm-hmm. handling firearms. And unlike other sports, usually dads or moms are out there, you know, uh, while they either practice or while they go for a shoot. And mm-hmm. it's very interactive that way. It just really emphasizes safety and uh, proper handling. To, to think that some people are trying to ban it is, is really a shame because it also goes back, you know, from uh, sons, fathers, grandfathers. Right. Yeah. Oh no, exactly. And it plus it, it mean yeah, no thanks to call. I mean it, exactly. And 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 it's for for people who want a particular type of competition, like I say, but you can't make the football team. Um and I, I think it's cool that this is co ed. Karen in Madison. Karen, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, hey thanks for taking my call. Sure. The minute I heard you talk about it, I thought, man, she is so full of beans. <laughs> I started shooting archery when I was a little kid, um, learned at camp, uh, ended up uh, and all the way through high school. It taught you patience. It taught you 
um, focus. I mean, because it wasn't like basketball where you could get the rebound and get another shot. When you let it go, that was it. And it also taught you, I mean, it taught me and everybody with us respect for firearms and for things because you knew what they could do. Right. And you knew what the responsibility in, in drawing that bow back and letting that arrow fly, what, what that meant and what it could happen if you didn't have people not in the way. And the whole, I mean, it, it, was, it, it wasn't a willy-nilly type thing. No, it taught you safety procedures. I mean, that was yeah. it. You knew, okay, you don't shoot when there's somebody downrange or whatever. And that, that's, you, you learn that. You learn proper handling of whether it's firearms or bow and arrows or whatever. Sure. Oh yeah, and it was it was like I said. It, 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 to this day, I wish I still kept up with it because it it was very enjoyable, and you could peak, kind of compete on a level that you couldn't say, like you said, for the football team right. or for for cheerleading or basketball. Archery and gun and guns take all different shapes and sizes. Yeah, exactly. No, thanks for the call, Karen. And you, and you don't sound like you're a serial killer, Matt in Brookfield. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Real well, thank you. Okay, the state representative says, okay, this, it's, it supports this whole gun culture. we got to keep bows and arrows and firearms out of schools. You know, keeping bows and arrows and firearms out of schools is, is, is not the issue. Letting these kids have access to them at that age is the issue. I think it's extremely important that these kids learn what firearms can do. I'm a retired teacher, and... We know where these problem kids are coming from. They are coming from the disaffected. They are coming from the background, the family backgrounds where they haven't been taken care of properly. I am now in the process of getting my certification to teach the hunter safety course. And I got to tell you, it does nothing but teach them respect for firearms, makes them understand how dangerous these things are. It gives the kids a sense of worth. It yeah. gives them a sense of, of competition. Uh, I, before you used the word nuts, I said she's nuts. <laughs> Great, Matt. Thanks for the call. Great minds think alike. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, you want to talk about a non-starter? Look, I I understand. Well, you know, we, we don't want to we don't want to have guns in schools. Well, I, I get that. You know, you don't want kids bringing handguns to school. But you know, air rifles or trap shooting or archery. You know, those clubs. That's treating, that's teaching positive values and sportsmanship and it's providing an opportunity for people to compete. And yes, you're right, Matt. I'm right. This lady is nuts. 152, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 209. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Hey, um, number of people are doing this. You can follow me on Twitter. What we try to do, matter of fact, every day, with our social media folks taking the impetus behind this. Um, we, we do at least one tweet, maybe sometimes a couple, uh, about one of the big stories. We do a special, like, in-depth analysis of what we're going to be talking about, at least one of the big stories. And if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 You can get that Twitter notification. Again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 Follow me. Uh, you know, oftentimes I, I hear, particularly from people in the suburbs, uh, about... Well, you, you talk, Jeff, a lot about like crime in Milwaukee County. Well, wh- why why do we care about crime in Milwaukee County or or the city of Milwaukee? It's it's the city of Milwaukee, and everybody knows it's got all these different problems that are there. And so, but that's fine. We you know we make the decision. We're not going to travel through some of these areas, or we're going to be real cautious. It that, it doesn't affect us. Well, here's another story that emphasizes why it does. One of the things that has been happening as 
as the crime problem, whether it's car thefts or robberies or whatever, as it has gotten progressively worse, first in the city of Milwaukee and then spreading out to Milwaukee County, is what you now see is the problem is spreading into the suburbs. Kewaskum. Rue, do you even know where Kewaskum is? You don't even know where Kewaskum is. Kewaskum is a very, very nice community. Um, friends of mine run a restaurant in Kewaskum. It's a very, very nice community. Think West Bend and then go north. So, you know, you're talking, it's still Washington County, but West Bend and, and north. So you're talking, you know, a half hour, 35, 45 minutes from here. here, here here's the story. Woman in Kewaskum, village of Kewaskum, Saturday morning. Getting ready to go to work, she had her car in her driveway, and it was idling. She was warming up her car Saturday morning before going to work in Kiwaska. All right? Well, you know, we now know on the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee, you cannot leave your car unattended for, oh, 30 seconds, or else it is going to be gone, as you have the roving gangs of thugs and gangsters and punks who are driving around just looking to find that unattended car. Okay, So we know that in the city of Milwaukee, and unfortunately, we're starting to know that in some of the suburbs. This is Kewaskum. So here's the way today's TMJ4 reports it. A village of Kewaskum resident had her car stolen from her driveway early Saturday morning. The woman told police she was warming up her car prior to work when a 17-year-old Milwaukee teen got in and drove off. The vehicle was traveling in excess of 100 miles an hour, swerving back and forth between lanes. The driver ultimately lost control, crashed into a median, and started heading eastbound. Deputies followed the vehicle until the operator stopped on its own. This would be the car thief. The teenager was taken into custody without further incident. No one was injured in the pursuit or the arrest. The teen is not believed to have acted alone, and the incident is still under investigation. Okay, so let me translate this. Let me translate this. Unhappy with the number of cars that these thugs and punks can steal in the city of Milwaukee. First, like the ink blot, you know, you spill you spill the coffee, and as the stain starts to spread out over the map, unhappy with just um, into the immediate Milwaukee suburbs, now you apparently have roving bands of thieves from Milwaukee who are up in Kewaskum looking to try to find that target of, of opportunity. And now I guess is a lot of people said, gee, we live in places like Kewaskum because we don't want to necessarily have to lock our doors. You know, we want that sort of community. And if we want to leave our car running to warm up for a little bit, you know, we're, we would like to be able to do it. Well, th- this is why when we talk about crime issues in Milwaukee, it is a matter that should be of importance to everybody, not just because of the general policy thing, but because, again, as out-of-control crime in Milwaukee starts to spread, it is affecting communities, whether it's the lady at the Piggly Wiggly out in West Bend you know, who gets carjacked or the people in, in Waukesha who find themselves the victim of crime after crime. And it's not always people from Milwaukee, but a lot of times it is. And now you have, apparently, if I read between the lines here, you know, they think that this 17-year-old who stole the car out of the driveway and then led the cops on a high-speed chase, they think that the 17-year-old was part of a larger group that has apparently decided, hey, there's just not enough cars to steal in Milwaukee now, so we're going to have to come out to Kewaskum to do it. 
Now, my guess is that the judges in Washington County are going to take a significant, and the prosecutors are going to take a significantly less, what would be the word, enlightened view of criminals who come into their county from Milwaukee to commit crimes when it comes to making charging decisions and sentencing decisions. But, but be warned that the reality is the crime problem in Milwaukee is spreading, and it is spreading quickly. And if you think, oh, gee, you know, why... I, I, you know, I, I like to leave my doors unlocked or, you know, I should maybe just, you know, why, why shouldn't I be able to leave my car idling while I'm getting ready to go into work? Well, the bottom line is just realize that these problems that have been plaguing Milwaukee for a long time, they're, they're now coming to a driveway near you, courtesy of the out of control crime rate. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, state Republican convention this weekend, the delegates endorsed Leah Vukmir for Senate. What should her opponent, Kevin Nicholson, in the Republican primary do now? Stick around. I'll give you my answer. It's 2.15. This is Jeff Wagner. 2.18, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. have a number of texts on this story. Do, do, do kids in Milwaukee have nothing better to do than go to the suburbs to steal cars? And I assume that's rhetorical because obviously the answer is um, no. And I, I think what you're starting to see, too, is, is we say kids. These are you have roving gangs of, of thugs that, that are out there. This is not just, hey, these are not just pranks. These are organized because, I mean, let, let's take the thing that happened Saturday in Kewaskum. I mean, you just you, you these are people who came from Milwaukee with the idea that they were going to steal cars in Washington County. And I think it's because they figured that there was easier targets of opportunity. But, you know, somebody had to drive the 17-year-old. The authorities say, no, we th- think it's part of a ring that, that is operating. So, again, just like you spill that coffee onto the map and it's spread, the stain kind of spreads out, that's what you are seeing happening in the suburbs. So beware. All right. As we've mentioned before, last weekend the Republican state Republican convention was in Milwaukee. One of the things that the state Republican Party did a number of years ago in an effort to try to, and, and let me give you a little insider baseball here. What the, the, the principal motivation, in my opinion, for doing this was they wanted to increase attendance at the state convention. So they started saying, all right, we're, we're going to have party endorsements. And the idea being, um, if you've got two or three candidates that are running for a particular office in a primary and the state party was going to endorse, hey, that would give incentive for the different candidates to get their supporters to attend the state convention. So it was, in part, a measure driven to increase attendance. But um, the way the rules work is if you get 60% of the delegates, these are the people that, that you know, the the Working activists, I mean, you're an activist if you go to the state party convention. you, The working activists, if you can get 60% to endorse your candidacy, then you get to say that you are the endorsed candidate of the state party. It doesn't change anything because you still have to participate in a primary, but it does give you access to Republican Party, in this case, infrastructure. It gives you um, access to some of the fundraising lists. It, it is It is an advantage. Is it a guarantee that you win? No, but it's definitely an advantage. Well, in, in what should be a surprise to nobody, um, you've got two people that are running for the right to challenge 
Tammy Baldwin in November. And again, there's going to be a primary in August. One is State Senator Leah Vukmir, who's well-known. She was on our earlier today. Leah has been um, one of the conservative soldiers in the trenches for you know 20 years. She was a state representative, then a state senator. She was at the tip of the spear on Act 10. She's been well, well-known. She comes from the so-called grassroots herself. She is well-known to Republican Party regulars. Um, the other person running for office is Kevin Nicholson. He is, he's a newcomer. Um, he's, you know, I mean, he was at Insight when we did that a month and a half ago. He's, he's kind of a flamethrower. Everybody knows his background. He's a former Marine. He's kind of styled himself, I would say, more as the sort of Donald Trump type of, of candidate, that kind of outsider. Um, Leah Vukmir being more of an establishment player. And I don't say that as a bad thing because the, it's not like the Republican establishment in Wisconsin is this sort of doctrinaire thing. But in any event, he's been billing himself as the outsider. At the state Republican convention this weekend, uh, Leah Vukmir got well above the 60% of the, that she needed to get the state party's endorsement. So she is now the endorsed candidate of the state par- Republican Party of Wisconsin. Or whatever that means. There is, behind the scenes, some pressure now being brought on Kevin Nicholson to to drop out. We have all seen what happens sometimes when you get these very, very competitive primaries. Six years ago, when Tammy Baldwin was running the first time, you had a very, very contested four-way primary, ultimately for the Republican nomination, ultimately won by former Governor Tommy Thompson. The problem was that you know Thompson won the battle but didn't win the war. He spent all his campaign money to win the primary, wins the primary in August, then doesn't have enough money to go on the air. His campaign is essentially dark for five or six weeks. Tammy Baldwin swoops in. She's spending all her money running these ads and, and ended up, Again, I don't know if Thompson would have been able to win six years ago because that was when Obama was running for re-election and, and there was a Republican headwind. So I, I don't know if he would have been able to win anyways. But I do tell you that that didn't help him going dark for five or six weeks. So right now the argument is, hey, Leah Vukmir was endorsed by the state party. Um, a bruising primary battle doesn't help anyone. Kevin Nicholson should stand aside um, say, okay, maybe this isn't my time. We'll we'll let we'll get out of the way. We'll let we'll consolidate. We'll join together. We'll run and we'll we'll just endorse the parties. Endorse Leah Vukmir. I should endorse Leah Vukmir, and we'll move forward. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Given the fact that he did not get the endorsement of the state party, is it now time for Kevin Nicholson to essentially step aside? And say, all right, I'm, I'm going to back out of this, ran a good campaign, I'm going to back out of this race, and Leah, this is your chance to go, do the best job you can, because hopefully we, we want to have the best candidate in the strongest position possible to beat Tammy Baldwin in November. Should Kevin Nicholson step down? 414-799-1620, I will give you my answer in just a couple moments, but I'm curious as to what you think. 224 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Stick around. 226 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Bob in Wauwatosa. Bob, good afternoon. Yeah, your old friend and my old friend, Ken Clayson, and I re-engineered mm-hmm. that endorsement thing back after Dreyfus stupidly dropped it back 
1978 because he lost by 25 votes <laughs> to Bob Cassidy. Right. The fact is that he should stop. People don't realize, but the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are teams. And if you want to just do this for your own particular uh, glory, then you stay in, and then we fight the hell. We use all kinds of money up. In the meantime, Tammy Baldwin can sit there and, and shoot away, build her organization, spend her money to do that, and then we come into the same situation that we had with Tommy. Whether we would have won in 2012, because they ran the best campaign in history, I don't know. Mm-hmm. What What if Bob Nicholson would be a better candidate, more likely to beat Tammy Baldwin than Leah Vukmir? I mean, what what if what if that's the case? Uh, if that would be the case, I don't think it is the case. Yeah. But uh, I, I think Leah knows the issues far better if you listen to him debate uh, this particular thing. And I respect him because he's a Marine, like because my kids have been. Uh, Special Forces, all three But the fact is, is that I don't think he knows the issues anywhere near as well as Leah does. She is really up on it. He says he's got private polling showing that he, he's up by 20 or 30 points or, or whatever. Is that, do we just discount that? Or um, is it possible that he could be the preference of Republican voters? I haven't seen any polls that I trust. Yeah. Uh, what did Leo, Lee Dreyfus said? The only polls I trust live on the south side. Well, then now they've got the walking truck. But the fact is that the only polls that I trusted in the last election were Rasmussen and L.A. Times, and they were the only ones that were right. And the, these ones that they bounce around now, I wouldn't give you a nickel for them, and especially when the when the client or the, or the candidate says he has his own polls. Well, you think he'd tell us that his polls showed him behind? No, I don't believe that. Right. Okay, now thanks for calling. And, 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 and that... See, here, here's where I come down, and I understand there's going to be some people who institutionally will disagree with me, including my, my friend Bob there. I, I, think, I think it is important to have the strongest Republican candidate possible, you know, in a position to cha- challenge Tammy Baldwin. And, and I, I agree with that. And I also agree that primary campaigns can be costly and divisive and can can leave, you know, again, like if we go back to 2012, you know, can leave a, a very good Republican nominee, in this case, Tommy Thompson, without money and just an in, in, in inability to proceed. Here's my issue. I'm not convinced I know who the best Republican candidate is. And by best, I mean the one with the greatest chance to beat Tammy Baldwin. But I, I'm not sure we know that. Now, it might be at a certain point in time where it becomes very clear that one of the two candidates has emerged and they're going they're going to win so why bother going through this let's have that unity thing and it might very well be that 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 happens at some point in time i'm just not sure that we are there yet because again in this i i've been very very clear that i'm i'm not taking a position in this race i think they are both good candidates um, at some point in time, perhaps I'll make a prediction or I'll tell you who I would end up voting for. But, I mean, right now, I'm not sure that anybody knows which one of those two candidates has the best chance. We can all think that, and people have different ideas, but I'm not sure that anybody knows for sure who has the best chance of beating Tammy Baldwin. And that's why I think at this point in time, it is perhaps premature to say to one of the two candidates, you need to drop out. I also don't think that's going to happen. Now, it might be... Four weeks from now, or six weeks from now, or eight weeks from now, that that whole dynamic has changed. At which point in time, 
then when it's really clear, I think, who that strongest candidate is, then I think the other one should, in fact, probably get out of the way. But that hasn't happened yet. So I, I just, given, I don't see either candidate dropping out at this point in time. Okay, 231, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, who's producing the show. I'm getting people who, who thought I was making up that story about uh, the panhandling at the Milwaukee County Airport. I, I, I'm not. I mean, Journal's not reporting this. You're just tuning in. This, this is how Milwaukee County has decided to get funds to help the homeless. They're apparently going to put up, like, collection bins, uh, change jars outside at the airport, but right at the uh, – when you go through security, you know, where you get up there and you have to take your keys and your wallet and your phone out of your pocket and put it in a little thing to go through the metal detector – Apparently, their idea is they're going to um, put, like, containers. Um, and the idea is that, you know, people, they'll ask people to give their spare change, and they're going to use that to help the homeless. So we're, it, it's sort of like organized panhandling. I, I you know, I, I don't mean to mock it. Don't mean to mock it. I, I think we should carry it the next step, though. I mean, what, why just put the containers there? I, I mean, Chris Abley, members of the county board, Give them like cardboard signs and, and let them take shifts there. You know, kind of kind of rattling the can there, trying to get the uh, trying to get the change. It's, it's apparently based on something they do in Denver, where now Denver's different than here, where they generate ninety four thousand dollars a year. I just at the same time, I it, the only comment I would have is: is this is this really the image of Milwaukee that you want to send to? I don't know. We've we've got the We've got the people flying in um, who are going to check out the Foxconn stuff, and and we're trying to bring all these other plants and businesses here. Is this the image of Milwaukee that you want? That that here we're we're engaging in I don't know government panhandling essentially. You know, leave us your spare change. I just apparently the county board thinks it's a good idea, but the county board thinks a lot of stuff is a good idea. All right, during the teas, it's something that might be in your pocket or your purse that could is could be killing you. When this, the first time something like this happened, we discussed it in a general term. That was probably a year or two ago. And over that period of time, very little has changed. Now, grew your car. Do you have, an, when you go to start the car, do you have the old-fashioned car key that you put the key in the ignition and then turn on the ignition? You do not. You have, you have, the, you have a, a key fob. Okay, right. Um, I, my, my last car had the, the, the car keys, you know, so you'd have it, the key ring and you'd come in and you'd put the key in and you'd turn the ignition. Um, my, my new car that has the bells and whistles on it has the, the key fob where, the, you know, it, it's not a key. You just kind of put the thing in your pocket and it's got a sensor device on it and you, you don't need a key to open up the car door. It's just as long as you've got the key fob with you, the car door automatically um, opens and you, you don't need to put a key in the ignition and turn the ignition. All you have to do is sit in the car, and you put your foot on the brake, and you push the button, and the thing starts. I didn't realize until I had this how convenient I thought something like this would be. But I, I will tell you, now, you know, having had, I've had my car for, you know, going on a year now, having had the car for a year, I think it would be difficult, if not impossible, to go back. It's just, it's an amazing convenience not to have to try to find your keys and pull your keys out of your pocket. And I know if um, for for women, and I'm not, this is not a sexist comment at all, but I, I know I know a lot of women in my life 
who have the, the giant purse, and they're always kind of like, you know, fumbling around. Where are my keys? And you know, the keys are always at the bottom of the purse, and it, it just becomes the search. Well, you know, if you've got the key fob, you don't need that anymore. You know, if the keys are in your purse. doesn't matter, you know, how much stuff they're under. You know, it, it's the car is going to start. The door is going to open up. It, it's cool. It, it's great. They are a wonderful convenience. So I am I am sold on this. But there is a problem, and the New York Times has a big story about this. Um, the what has happened is there are at least a handful of people who have died as a result of the keyless cars. Now you might say, Jeff, how how could you die as a result of the keyless cars? But but here's what happens: a lot of the newer car engines are very very quiet, and what happens is you have somebody who, say, pulls into their garage and closes the garage door and gets out of the car and forgets to turn the car off, forgets to push the button, you know, the ignition button, forgets to turn the car off, and because the cars are so quiet, doesn't realize that they have left the car running. So you close the garage, you get out of the car, you don't realize that you've left the car running, you go into the house, and what has happened is at least there's been a handful of incidents where people have lost their life. They died because they go into the house. The car continues to run. Carbon monoxide fills the house and somebody dies. Story in the New York Times I'm looking at. Um, guy um, who was in his 90s. One summer morning last year, Fred Schwab drove his Toyota RAV4 into the garage attached to his Florida home. Went into the house with the wireless key fob, evidently believing the car was shut off. 29 hours later, he was found dead, overcome with carbon monoxide that flooded his home while he slept. After 75 years of driving, my father thought that when he took the key with him and he left the car, the car would be off. But it's not. This guy is more than one of more than two dozen people killed by carbon monoxide nationwide since 2006 after the keyless ignition vehicle was inadvertently left running in their garage. These keyless ignitions are now standard in over half of the 17 million new vehicles sold annually. Now, there isn't a national regulation with regard to this. Um, there are some automakers who, for example, have different programs where as you leave the car, if the car is running, it beeps or it buzzes. Others don't. But there is a some people who say, that what we need is a federal regulation which would require, and the technology does exist, it, it would cost a little bit, but the technology exists, which would say if you leave the car and you go away with the key fob and the car is running, that after X period of time, after two minutes, five minutes, whatever, the car shuts off automatically. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Like I say, so far, the government has not gone that route. Um, individual car makers, again, beeping and buzzing. But should cars be required that have these keyless entries, the keyless cars, should they be required to install technology which shuts off the car after a period of time? Or is the fact that, you know, two dozen deaths over 17,000, 17 million new ve- in over eight and a half new million, eight and a half million new vehicles every year, 
two dozen deaths over the course of 10 years. Is that too small a number to have to do this? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need more auto safety in this area? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on, 414-799-1620. And again, this is primarily a problem among the very most senior drivers um, who don't realize that the car is still running. Okay, we discuss next. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Michelle in Grafton. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeff. Hey, um, I would. Uh, this is funny because I would have thought, "What is this? Uh, cannot hear it running of which you speak." Right. And then I went out to dinner. I have a, a an Avalon, so of course you can hear it when it runs. <laughs> but it's old, it, it's older. I mean, I love my car. And, right. And, sure. And, yeah. And I. But do, you can't walk away if you put it in your garage. You oh, know it's no, running no. when you get out. Got it. Sure. No, no, no. And I do search for my keys every darn day. It makes it slap me. But um. He, we went to a movie, and he um, he has a brand new, big, huge Chevy Tundra, like the bobble bells and this one. We got out, and he went to lock it. It wouldn't lock. And he said, I said, well, what's wrong? What do you mean it won't lock? And he said, well, I think it's still running. Oh. Said, what, what, you think it's still running? And I, how can you, it doesn't, it's not running. And we went, it was running. And exactly like you said, it was so silent, but it, it was still on. But you can't, you can't lock, and a lot of people don't lock their cars in the garage, you know, but um, his wouldn't lock if it was still running. Right. But I think it's a great idea. And, um, you know, my mom has a brand new Toyota RAV4, and she will be 91 on Friday. Right. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I worry about I worry about her driving, period. Well, right, but much less that. No, no, thanks for calling me. I mean, here, see, here's the, here, here's the thing. For example, the technology does exist. Ford, for example, they have they have this they say they've had this since 2013 in their their keyless automobiles. And what they say they do is that if the if you walk away, if you don't have the key fob in the car and it's more than 30 minutes, the car automatically shuts off. I think it would be a good idea to require that. Now, let's be honest, though. That doesn't solve the problem completely because there's a couple different things. First of all, any of that technology is going to be based on the key fob leaving the car, right? Because, I mean, that, that's what keeps the car running. You know, you're sitting in the car with the key fob. What happens, and Michelle was alluding to this just a minute ago, what happens a lot of the times is people leave the key fob in the car. So let's take a scenario where you've got the key fob in the car, and you don't take that with you. Well, I mean, I don't know that there's any technology that you could have that's going to stop that. So you have somebody pulls in the car. Um, the car is running. They leave the key fob in there. They leave the car running. They get out. Well, under that scenario, the, the car is going to continue to run. And I don't think there's anything technologically that they could do to, to do anything about it because, well, you don't want a situation where if you're sitting in a car that your car is going to automatically shut off after 15 or 20 minutes or, or whatever. So it's not going to be a perfect solution. And of the 24 people who've died over the last X number of years, I would be curious to know how many were in that situation. That is that they left the key fob in the car when the car was, in fact, running, which is something they tell you never to do. I think moving forward, it would not be the worst thing in the world 
for that to be a requirement. I, it, it does not cost that much from what I understand. I mean, we're really talking a dollar or two, and you can put that technology in, and then you can solve the problem. Now, here's where it gets trickier, though. It's one thing to say, okay, moving forward, on new cars, we're going to require this. It's a small thing. It adds two bucks to the cost of the car or whatever to have this technology that's there to protect this. That's one thing. What do you do, though, about the tens of millions of cars that are out there? And this this keyless ignition, the key fob stuff, the keyless cars, I mean, it started in 2007 to the point that, as I was saying, 2017, they estimate that half of the cars sold now are that type. So last year it was 8.5 million. Okay, well, I know there weren't 8.5 million that were sold in 2007 or 8, but you, you are talking tens of millions over the last couple years, over the last decade that, that now are out on the road with that. What do you do about the ones that are on the road? Not the new ones, but what do you do about the new, the ones that are on the road? Do you have massive recalls? Do you say you got to take it in and it's got to be retrofitted and all that? That is a much more difficult um, and much more expensive process, and I'm not willing to go that far. I do think it's something that the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration should look at moving forward because it's something that makes common sense, and it's pennies. Um, trying to deal with all the cars on the road, though, that have this, given the fact that the problems are very, very limited. And I, I understand one death is too much. I get it. But given the fact that you've got millions and millions of these cars that are on the road, and given the fact that 24 people have died as a result of this over the last decade, and as I say, my guess is that some of them are because they left the key thing in the car anyhow. So even if you had this technology, it wouldn't have shut off. Um, Whether or not you undertake the massive, here we're going to do massive recalls and we're not going to grandfather that in, I'm not willing to go that far. But the bottom line is, this is, it is in fact an issue, and it's a bigger issue than you might think. And until, until they mandate something, it's going to vary from automaker to automaker, but it is definitely something that you want to pay attention to. Don't bounce out of that car when it's running and shut the garage door because, um, bad things could happen. You just might want to take a minute or two and double check. It is 2.53 when we come back. John McCure is back from his We Love Wisconsin tour. I had a blast. I went out uh, on Friday to Gra- in Grafton and met a lot of different listeners and had a great time watching John McCure work. It, there's nothing better, nothing better than sitting back, having a beer, and watching John McCure and Greg Matzik work. So I was, I was enjoying the audience as well. He's back in the studio. We'll find out what he's got on his mind in just a couple minutes. Please stick around. It's 2.54. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.